you know, one of the characteristics of a framework is that when facts come in to to contradict your framework, it's the facts that are thrown out, not the framework. So, like, if you um, if your framework, like you said, is that Muslims are violent and that Muslim women are oppressed, and then you meet me, and I'm a corporate lawyer and I'm, you know, not not oppressed, not particularly silent, uh, then what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, you're an exception. I mean, how many people like there really are you? Or you're going to say, well, you must be a non-practicing Muslim though, right? Or you're going to say, oh, I don't believe you. Which is what happens to me actually quite a bit and other Muslims as well. Uh, because it's hard to reconcile those, those you know, facts with, with that old framework. Want to see your sadness. I want to share the Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. If your face is down, but take a look around. Welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. John, I tried to catch you laughing again, but you like held it in. I know. <laughs> uh, it's always good to start off with a Williamson laugh. It, <laughs> you do that to me every time. Every time. And you know what? It always works. It's a thing we do. <laughs> um, this is going to be the start of something beautiful, is it not? Oh my gosh. I mean, dude, can I, can I brag on you a little bit? <laughs> okay. This, John is our CEO. But... <laughs> And ops, and HR, and logistics, <laughs> and our recording studio, right. and our barman, That's true. and our shipping, and receivables. Not doing such a great job at that lately. And, but, but the most important thing that John does, aside from being here for all of this, is he has been ideating some really cool things this year, and, and this is the start of one of them. Um, so one of the things about deconstruction is learning to see things from somebody else's perspective. And often we just focus on things from sort of the Western mind. So Christianity, science, atheism, you know, different kind of nuances, you know, even in between those sorts of streams and how they interact and, you know, different weird theologies and blah, blah, blah. But we're all always kind of playing in similar streams, right? Yeah. Not anymore. Thanks to John Williamson. <laughs> because he ideated this whole idea of a religious pluralism episode, and I hope it's the start of something regular because this is going to be a little series that we do starting today um, and running for the next several episodes to take a look at something that's not at all a part of these worldviews that we normally look into. Somebody totally different is going to come onto the show and hopefully challenge everything you've assumed you knew about a particular way of seeing um, the universe... God, spirituality, reality, and humanity. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I just, you know, we, we talked about way back, for those of you who have been following us since uh, day one, we talked way back a year and a half ago about the idea of having other representatives from other religions on. And, you know, as time went on, you know, we kind of grew into something completely uh, different than what we had kind of anticipated when we first started this project. Um, but that was always an idea that was still kind of in the back of our brains, you know, mm-hmm. something that we wanted to kind of engage conversation in and and hopefully, um, you know, kind of uh, dispel some some misnomers, some some, uh, you know, some fallacies about um, other religions other than our own and, and kind of expose our own ignorance to a lot of this. Because I'll be honest, I, I learned a ton um, you know, having these conversations and, and taking some courses through, through school, um, and just trying to figure out what I didn't know, yeah. um, which was a lot. Yep. <laughs> um, so, so this, uh, this particular episode, um, you know, for a lot of people, um, should be, I think, um, fairly illuminating. Um, I, I think one of the, the religions that's been so prevalent in, in the news and in, in our, in our, in our minds and, and in societies, um, lately, especially in, in America, in the United States is, is Islam. And, um, obviously, you know, there's some, a lot of negative connotations, uh, that have been kind of attached to, to, uh, to that religion. And, For a long time. Yeah. I mean, just even in just pop culture, like you don't realize it, but like everything from, you know, let's just call it even just a Middle Eastern sort of Sure. Kind of standpoint has been if, you're, if you have white skin or you live in America or you know any of and you've watched TV you know seventies and eighties you don't realize how much negative perception you have been introduced to. Yeah. Until you actually talk to somebody like we just did today and you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Crap. <laughs> and, and how we how we tend to generalize and just kind of lump um, you know one religion on you know a whole host of different countries that you know. So, like anybody that's from the Middle East, I mean, how many times have you overheard a conversation or you know whatever? You know, people just talking about, oh, they're they're probably all you know um, Muslims or whatever, right? You know, having no concept of the geography and and the history and and that sort of thing. So, I think you know, for me, this was a really just I I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and oh. it taught me a ton. Um, it just, taught me how much I know incorrectly, yes, and what I don't know. Right. Yeah. Again, it just comes back to like having some humility and going, maybe I just shouldn't talk right now. Yeah. And ultimately at the end of the day that, um, you know, when, when we look at especially Islam and, and looking at the, the negative aspects of the religion, as there are with any religion, um, we, we really need to be careful uh, when we start to have, you know, have these moments of overgeneralization. Right. Um, Which you we know, all want to do. Not not all Christians are you know the uh, Westboro Baptist type right. Christians right right and we would never overgeneralize in that way and say that uh, all cra- uh, Christians are crazy in that way you know and 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 you know and and just narrow minded and you know and and hateful and that sort of thing and that's the same same way with any religion and and so if if we can do anything uh, you know we're we're not we're not trying to sit here and say like you know. I, I don't know. We're not. We're, there, there's no point to this conversation other than we we just need to take a step back, maybe try to educate ourselves a little bit more, and and sit down and maybe have a cup of coffee with someone who's not of the same religion or same faith as you. And and half the time, conversation we really believe conversation with those who live in your community who may not look, dress, or act like you or believe like you 
is half the battle, mm. you know? Totally so agree, man. We can kickstart some dialogue. That is the only agenda that we have over the course of the, the next few weeks. Love it. So our guest this week, I guess we should probably say who it is. Yeah. <laughs> give, give us a little backstory here. That was um, a good little series intro. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, our guest this week is Sumble um, Ali Karamali, and she is the author of this really outstanding book. Um, it's called The Muslim Next Door. And um, it's a really cool book for, for anybody who really doesn't know anything about Islam. And uh, she doesn't profess to speak for the entire religion as a whole. And that's kind of the caveat for, for all three guests that we're about to have. But um, just if you need a general overview of the religion, you don't really know anything about it. Um, you know, I, I read a ton of different textbooks for, for some courses that I took on, on the subject. And this book, just in general... Um, if you just want to pick up one book that just kind of sums it all up and really just gives you a good overview, mm-hmm. this book is awesome. Mm. And she also wrote one that's uh, directed towards a younger audience as well. Um, that's really worth the look as well. Yeah, if you want to educate your kids. kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, she may not speak for the entire Muslim community, but it's pretty obvious that we do speak for the entire Christian community. Yes. You and I. Yes. We're the official spokespeople. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys knew that, but. Yeah, that, w- that happened <laughs> just recently. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. But oh yeah. man, you guys are really going to enjoy this. Let's uh, let's go ahead and roll tape. What do you say? Absolutely. Well, we're not going to put freaking in the middle of this one because <laughs> it's, it's going to be. We hard. made a rule a long yeah. time ago. If you have more than two names, it just it just we doesn't flow. To, we have to just say your name. So without further ado, Sumbul Ali Karamali. All right, well, we have here Sumbul Ali Karamali, and we just could not be more excited to welcome you uh, with a hearty hello, and thank you for being with us here on the Deconstructionist Podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm excited, too. Thank you for having me. Well, this is, uh, this is a series that we've wanted to, to do for a long time. We tried to, uh, to, to make it happen last year in 2016, but uh, those of us who have been following us for a long time, uh, you know, realized that last year got pretty busy. So, <laughs> and, and I think uh, this series will be, will, will be definitely um, a lot more educational this year. Uh, so uh, we brought you on for a specific reason, and it, it is to talk and have a conversation about Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, um, you have a pretty impressive resume. Uh, you got your <laughs> BA from Stanford. Um, you're JD from the University of California, Davis, and you have a graduate degree in Islamic law from the University of London. Yes. Um, so for those who don't know exactly what a degree in Islamic law is, um, what is it and what drove you into that field? Oh, okay. So um, I grew up actually in Los Angeles, and um, I grew up at a time where there are actually not that many Muslims around me, at least in the neighborhood that I was living. Um, it was pretty white and middle class. And um, none of my uh, friends had ever come across a Muslim. None of my teachers had ever cr- come across a Muslim. So I grew up answering a lot of questions. <laughs> and um, th- this continued. Like when I went to Stanford, it was like being in an interfaith 101 experience. And then mm. um, I went to law school and started practicing corporate law. And um, that's when really people started asking me for book recommendations because they were, you know, wanting to wanting to understand what was happening in the media. They were wanting to understand Muslims and Islam, but there was really 
nothing out there for them. And so when my husband's job took us to London, I that's when I did an LLM in Islamic law from the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, wow. And this is so this is actually like a legal specialization degree that comes after a JD. Um, and in Islamic law, so I'm not a, a cleric. You know, I didn't, this is not a religious degree. It's an academic degree in Islam and Islamic law, which, which oh, itself, by the way, Islamic law in itself is kind of a misnomer because it implies law the way we have law in the U.S. And really, it's more religious guidelines. Okay. Okay. Um, wow. That's really interesting. That's um, so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so you, so you decided to write this book and, um, what, was it something that, that you wrote uh, kind of as a reaction to the fact that there are there seem to be, anyway, a lot of kind of uh, uh, mischaracterizations, misrepresentations um, in, in the media? Because it seems like, especially since 9-11, obviously, um, we were kind of bombarded with, with news, and a lot of it is just focuses on, on kind of this small percentage uh, of folks who, who happen to be Muslims. And um, I know it... For me, I, I just started, uh, I think I told you before we started recording, uh, I just started taking a, a class on, on major religions in the world, and, and I think, for me, it was very, very eye-opening. Um, there are a lot of things that I thought I knew, uh, a lot of things that I just didn't know at all, um, <laughs> and, and I realized that, uh, you know, the, the people that we see in the news, we're, we're not really getting a fair representation. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, Muslims are largely absent from the news. Um, you know, just recently uh, in talking about the Muslim ban, you know, there are all these people and all these commentators on the news talking about the Muslim ban, which directly affects Muslims, right? Yeah. yeah. And yet I didn't see any Muslim commentators on, on news media. Um, uh. Likewise, likewise, there are uh, no Muslim normal characters on television. You know, the only Muslim characters on television are in the context of terrorism. They're either well, most of them are terrorists. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even the one that I can think of, which is a woman on Quantico, um, she's and she's pretty badass. She's she's an FBI agent. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, but she's still fighting terrorism. So there are none of us on TV who are just, you know, doctors or teachers or parents or people you would normally encounter in your life. So, yes, I wrote the book because, um, you know, I grew up. I grew up at a time, I was a kid before the Iranian revolution. And um, at that time, you know, people had no idea. If I said I was Muslim, they had no idea what that meant. And, you know, they tended to ask me how many gods I believed in. And um, if I said I was Indian, they asked me if I painted my face. So it, it, was, a, it was just a different time. Um, by the way, in my class at Stanford, um, out of 1,500 in my class, I think there were only four and a half Indians. Oh, wow. One was half Japanese. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, so, um, so before the Iranian revolution, really there was, there was, I mean, people were not informed about Islam, but there wasn't so much hostility either. Um, the Iranian revolution really changed things because for a lot of people, it was their first conscious um, and a sort of knowledge of Muslims and Islam. And it wasn't a good impression because here was this dude, he was, he had a turban, he was angry, he was saying death to America, he was Iranian and clearly Muslim. 
And that is really what changed coverage, I think, in the media. Things that used to be covered as political conflicts or socioeconomic situations started to become always uh, characterized as religious conflicts. Mm, Um, And so even before 9-11, there was this increasing framing of Muslims um, in the negative. So, and then then 9-11, of course, made things worse, but... You know, even right after 9-11, the number of Americans who viewed Muslims negatively was less than it is now. So, uh, Man, I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, well, it's a couple of reasons. I mean, one, um, in a recent study, 90% of media reports on Muslims are in the context of violence. So, you know, so of course you're going to conflate the two, like it would be hard not to conflate Muslims and violence if that's the only context that you heard about them in. Um, so that's that's one problem. You know, the other problem is that there is an Islamophobia industry in this country whose job it is to dump misinformation into the media. And this has been well documented um, by reports by the Center for American Progress, by the Institute of Race Relations in London. So um, that has been another factor, unfortunately. Man, and unless somebody points that out, like I'm just sitting here realizing that, you know, it, we, we consume media so almost subconsciously that unless somebody pointed it out, you would never even realize that most of the times Muslims are brought up in the news, it is in the context of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's sort of that, again, back to like biases that we have and, you know, confirmation bias, implicit bias, um, fits, fits right into that, plays right into that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's a long historical tradition of that. So, um, and that's something I, you know, of course I didn't know growing up here, but, you know, just like there's a, a, a long historical tradition in the West of anti-Semitism, there's a long historical tradition of anti-Islam. And, and the reason is because, you know, for medieval Christian Europeans, they didn't really know much about Islam. They, it was far away. Communication was not very good. And so they always thought of it as a foreign other religion, and they always looked at it through the lens of hostility. Um, mm-hmm. And that still permeates our culture and our media and our movies and our television. So Jack Shaheen is a professor um, who looked at over a thousand movies, American movies, with at least one Arab or Muslim character, character in them. Uh, and he found, unsurprisingly, that 94% had negative stereotypes. Of, man, you know, man. So it really permeates our entire culture, and so, like you said, confirmation bias. When you hear something negative about a Muslim, then it's confirmation that you know Muslims are bad or Islam is bad. If you if you hear positive things about Muslims, you tend to ignore them. <laughs> or the other thing is that, for example, the media really ignores uh, Muslim victims. So there have been. Uh, in the last seven, or, I don't know, six or seven years, the, the drone wars have seriously expanded. And yet in the media, we hear very little about the victims of those wars. Um, Physicians for Social Responsibility just came out with a report. And what they say is that the U.S. the U.S.'s war on terror in the last 15 years has caused as many as two million Muslim civilian deaths. Good Lord. And that's as compared to 94 American deaths from Muslim terrorism. 
Man. So there's a huge difference. And so, but, you know, again, that has not been in the media, right? So the media tends to inflate um, what, what we already think, which is that Muslims are bad, Muslims are terrorists, um, and pretty much ignores Muslim victims and, and positive things about Muslims and Islam. So it's very difficult um, to sort of overcome those frames. The the other interesting thing to, to kind of go along with what you're saying is there 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 seemed to have been very little, if any, coverage in regards to, um, for example, like the San Bernardino shootings or even 9/11, in regards to thousands upon thousands of Muslim leaders around the world denouncing those terrorist attacks. We didn't hear much about that. Oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> yes, that's that's true. Um, in fact, when I when I do public speaking, sometimes I'm asked. You know, why don't Muslims condemn terrorism? And I, I just say, all you have to do is Google Muslims condemn. Yes, they do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there are tens of thousands of statements. So, um, yeah, but, you know, it's, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's hard to overcome media frames. I mean, I've only been on CNN twice because often when the producers call me, I don't say what they want me to say. And so they don't put me on the air. And so the, the media is always, you know, they tend to look for a particular point of view. And usually, well, I would say very often, it's two extreme points of view. Yeah, because that sells Camrys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. so I, I wrote, anyway, I wrote my book because I really wanted to, um, I wanted to answer some of the questions that people asked me, which was not the stuff in the media. I mean, the people, the things that people asked me were, like, what do you do when you pray? And how are you different? And why do you fast? And, um, you know, what do you do as a Muslim? What makes you Muslim? So, so those were the kinds of things that I wanted to answer because, um, you know, we weren't taught world religions in school until pretty recently. And so people don't have a very good idea of what Muslims believe and what Islam actually says. And, and that makes, that makes it really easy for the haters to fool them. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to, I would really want to get into, uh, to your book and to really talking about kind of some of the, the misnomers, uh, of, of the religion. But before we do that, um, I, I think it would be really interesting to talk, uh, very quickly about kind of the, the difference and making the distinction between, uh, a particular religion and perversions of that particular religion. And, for Christians, we often forget, you know, uh, that there there are many examples in in Christian history. You know, uh, anything from the KKK, you know, Westboro Baptist Church, the the Holy Crusades, yeah, you know, examples of violence and uh, misconstrual of of the religion for their own purposes. So maybe if you could just uh, take a moment to talk about extremist groups. Um, that, that claim uh, Islam and how they're different from, from the mainstream religion, because they, they very much are. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for asking that. Um, in fact, I, I do bring up the KKK quite often because I think there, there's very little difference between the KKK and ISIS. Um, they're both extremist groups that use religious texts in order to further their own agendas. Yes. And the only reason that... ISIS is successful and the KKK isn't, is that ISIS operates in a failed state. So 
if ISIS operated in a place where the government was strong and where the rule of law was strong, they wouldn't have been nearly as successful as they have been. Um, so, for example, um, Lydia Wilson at Oxford interviewed ISIS fighters, and she asked them, well she, well, she talked about why they were doing what they were doing, and basically she found that a lot of them were fighting for ISIS because ISIS paid them. They didn't really know very much about religion. They weren't there for the religion. They were there because they needed to provide for their families. And after the um, U.S. invasion of Iraq and the installation of the right-wing Shia government there, Sunnis have had a difficult time. Uh, wow. So, in fact, um, it was, well, well, according to, to some people, it was Iraqi security forces firing at an unarmed Sunni protest that was really the catalyst for the formation of ISIS. And a lot of ISIS commanders are people who used to be in Saddam Hussein's government. So, you know, I think where there's chaos, there's always going to be people who who try to grab power for themselves, and that's what's happened with ISIS. Um, they're not, it's very easy um, to say, oh, it's because they're Muslim, they're motivated, motivated by religion. They're motivated by power. Religion is a justification. And I think, mm. you know, I think like you were saying, this is always the case. I mean, people want power, they want territory, and they use religion as a justification. So um, Mark Sageman is a former consultant with the CIA, and he, he has shown, and he, he says repeatedly, that um, these people are acting from political grievances and not religious motivations. Um, Robert Pape, who was at the University of Chicago, did a 25-year study where he showed that suicide attackers are acting because they want to dislodge occupying powers from land they see as their homeland. They're not uh, acting out of religious motivations. Um, in fact, I don't know if you knew, there were two British, um, British men who were apprehended. They were going to try to join ISIS. And they were, they were apprehended before they could do that. And they looked at the last two books that they had ordered from Amazon. And the last two books were Islam for Dummies and Quran for Dummies. Oh, my gosh. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, you know, they were not going out of some sort of religious uh, motivation. The other thing, too, is that even if they were, even if there was a religious motivation, um, in ISIS members or Al-Qaeda or whoever, these, these extremists, terrorism has always been prohibited in Islam as, from the very beginning over a thousand years ago. So terrorism as defined as the clandestine use of force has always been prohibited and there were severe penalties for it um, in Islam, under Islamic law. Um, killing of civilians is prohibited. Arbitrarily destroying property is prohibited. Uh, poisoning the water supply is prohibited. Killing the elderly or children is prohibited. Killing anyone who is taking refuge in holy buildings is prohibited. So the rules of war in Islam are very, very strict. And I would say maybe even stricter than our, our modern rules of, of warfare. So even if you do have a jihad or even if you do have, um, you know, a, a religious motivation, you cannot do those things. You cannot kill civilians. You cannot commit terrorism. And that's really clear in Islam. It's established. Lost in the past and what's next Keeping me from loving how I know best Fro
from a place of presence Remember when we parked in your mother's car On the bridge over the river Lost inside a moment There are so many misconceptions And for, you know, a 45 minute to an hour long conversation You know, there's just We would need we would need a series that would go on much, much longer. But, you know, a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what you do and, and what your book is about is, you know, doing your best to clear up misconceptions. And misconceptions of your spiritual tradition uh, seem to, a lot like many spiritual traditions, be largely attributed mainly to a loud, more visible, for whatever reason, be it media or whatever, m- minority uh, that are, you know, almost for lack of a better phrase, like ruining it for, for everybody else. You know, I'm thinking in your book of even the situation of, uh, the man uh, on the bus when you were in Istanbul uh-huh. yeah, and just the li- that little, you know, the, these little misconceptions and the, you know, the loud minority kind of giving people the wrong idea. I think this is something that most worldviews, religions, spiritualities, traditions, have in common that the misconceptions come from a small but loud minority. Would you agree? Do you have some thoughts on that? Well, I, I do agree with that. I think also, though, it's it's our fixation on that minority. Mm. So, for example, um, you know, yes, there's been a lot of conflict in the Middle East, but there's been decades of violent conflict in Latin America, and yet that has never been portrayed as Christian violence. There was a 30-year civil war in Sri Lanka between Tamils, um, Hindus, and uh, Buddhists, and yet that was never characterized as Hindu violence or or Buddhist violence. Um, You know, in Myanmar right now, the Buddhist government is persecuting Rohingya Muslims, um, putting them in camps, and basically undertaking an ethnic cleansing operation that has been largely ignored by the media here. Um, and also, it is not characterized as Buddhist violence. So it's kind of the easy way out um, to always characterize any violence that a Muslim does as because of Islam or because, or as Muslim violence. You know, sometimes it has nothing to do with religion, right? Um, it's resource wars or fights over interest structure or territorial wars. Um, but it's easy to sort of lump everything as sectarian violence or or uh, Islamic violence, and even those terms are a problem because um, I hear over and over Islamic terrorism instead of Muslim terrorism, and Islamic is wrong because it it means that the terrorism is pursuant to Islam. You can say they're Muslim terrorists; they're absolutely Muslim terrorists, but they're not Islamic. Wow. Do you know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so even the terminology perpetuates this idea. I mean, the BBC often uses jihadist as synonymous with terrorist, uh, even though terrorism is not allowed under jihad, <laughs> under Islamic law. So um so that just perpetuates our, our points of view. It's it's kind of an easy thing to do. You know, if you already Again, you know, there is a historical tradition of viewing Islam as the enemy, as the as the false religion, as the foreign religion. And if that's your frame, then you are going to fixate on on the negative stuff, on the on the extremists. So the numbers, um, you know, I hear sometimes people saying, oh, I know that not all Muslims are terrorists, but 
all terrorists are Muslim, right? Come on. And, <laughs> and actually, you know, according to the FBI, 6% of terrorists in the U.S. are Muslim. In Europe, it's less than 2%. Wow. So we get a very... So, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, uh, I, I think this is a perfect time uh, uh, to, to ask this question. And basically... One of the things I, I noticed in your book that I thought was really interesting and 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 kind of perfect for for what we're talking about here is you you tell a story about um, a partner in your law firm <laughs> that demanded to know why Muslims were more violent than other kinds of people, and you've had similar questions asked of you. Um, and I, I think uh, um, I would love to hear you talk about that. And also, just uh, I think this is a good place to start, kind of talking about some misconceptions because I think the two biggest things that that you often hear are that. Islam is a very violent religion, and the other one is that that they force women into kind of submissive roles. And yet, your book, you're you're on the front cover, smiling, wearing a V neck sweater, and I'm assuming jeans. You know, <laughs> it was so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I sometimes tell people, okay, so a majority of Americans say they have negative views of Muslims, and a majority of Americans say they've never met a Muslim, and sometimes. Ah! And sometimes I think, okay, so if you met me, would you know that I was Muslim? You wouldn't. I mean, I don't, I don't stick out my head and say, hi, I'm Muslim. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't, you know, so uh, I, I don't wear a burqa. In fact, you know, less than 1% of, of Muslim women around the world wear, wear face veils. Um, I would, it's hard to estimate. Certainly when I was growing up, most Muslim women in the world didn't even wear headscarves. Um, Whoa. So... You know, so you wouldn't know. Um, most people don't even know, for example, that nine Muslim women have been heads of state of Muslim countries just in the last few decades, either presidents or prime ministers. No, no. definitely not. I if think you can see the shock on our faces <laughs> yeah, right now. Yeah. We are sh we are shocked. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, that what does that say? That means not only that they were successful enough to become presidents or prime ministers, but that their Muslim population supported them. So, you know, that's very different from what we're constantly hearing. Um, you know, going back to that framework, it's funny. When I was a, it was basically when I was a baby lawyer that this partner sat me down and said, um, why are Muslims more violent than other kinds of people? And, you know, there I was looking really nonviolent. I was in my new suit. I was <laughs> had my new pumps. And, and I just, I've always thought, you can see me, but that's not changing your mind. And it's because of that framework. You know, one of the characteristics of a framework is that when facts come in to, to contradict your framework, it's the facts that are thrown out, not the framework. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, like, if, you, um, if your framework, like you said, is that Muslims are violent and that Muslim women are oppressed, and then you meet me— and I'm a corporate lawyer, and I'm, you know, not not oppressed, not particularly silent. Uh, then, what are you going to do? You're going to say, "Well, you're an exception." I mean, how many people like there really are you? Or you're going to say, "Well, you must be a non-practicing Muslim, though, right?" Or you're going to say, "Oh, I don't believe you," which is what happens to me actually quite a bit, and other Muslims as well. Uh, because it's hard to reconcile those those you know facts with with that old framework. So 
the first time I heard someone say Islam was sexist was when I was in law school. And it, I had never heard this before. I was shocked because when I was growing up, um, you know, my parents didn't say you have to get married at an early age. My parents said, you have to be as educated as you can be, and you have to be financially independent. Wow. And all of my parents' friends, I mean, all of my Muslim girlfriends growing up had the same experience. All Mostly their parents were like, okay, you have to be doctors. There's no other, there's no other choice for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, you went the other path. You became a lawyer, so, you know. <laughs> no, I was, I was a grave disappointment being a lawyer instead of a doctor. <laughs> so... Um, it's, you know, it's like I said, um, it's, it wasn't my experience. And I think also, um, the thing people that really have a hard time with is separating culture, socioeconomic conditions and religion. So, yes. so for example, in Pakistan, it's not, it's not religion that's going to hold a woman back. It's poverty. Wow. So in, you know, in Pakistan, especially in the cities, I mean, I know women who are, um, I know a woman who, who practices law at the Supreme Court of Pakistan. I know, um, I know that, at least for a while, the, the head of Human Rights Watch in Pakistan was a woman. There are lots of physicians um, who are women in Pakistan. Those are the ones who've, who've been able to afford an education. It's, if they're poor, if they're the villages, in the villages, that's when girls have a hard time getting an education because maybe there aren't schools in their villages. Maybe the parents can't afford to send them to school. Um, or if they have to make a choice between their son and their daughter, they'll send their son because they think he'll have a better chance of success. So uh, one of the nonprofits that builds girls' schools in Pakistan, you know, they say, yes, sometimes the Taliban are a problem, but the main problem in educating girls in Pakistan is poverty. And that's something you don't really hear. No, not yeah. at all. I'm just blown away by all this. Yeah. So, and even in, you know, like also the other thing we always hear about is Saudi Arabia, right? Because um, <laughs> I have to tell you, I was speaking to a sixth grade class and this one kid raised his hand and he said, you know, I thought Muslim women were all covered up and couldn't go anywhere without their husbands or fathers and couldn't drive. So how did you get here? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> it, it was 11. And I, and I, I said my camel, I, I took my camel. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> but no, I, and then I said, well, you're thinking of Saudi women and you know, Saudis are only 2% of the Muslim population in the world. Over half the Muslims in the world are in Asia. And in Saudi Arabia, um, what's operating is just as much conservative culture of the Arab Peninsula as, as religion. In fact, um, when I was doing my degree in Islamic law, my advisor was a Christian Lebanese man. And he said, to my shock one day, he said Saudi Arabia would be a lot freer if they actually applied Islamic law. Really? Yeah. Because um, oh, a lot of what's operating there is cultural tribal law. <clears throat> so, you know, so all these things, I mean, you know, it's easy to point to a particular culture um, and attribute it to Islam because that's the easy 
the easy answer. But, you know, even in Saudi Arabia, there are more women than men in universities. Um, Man. Which is actually in Iran as well. More women than men in universities in Iran. Um, you are really deconstructing some, some uh, frameworks over here. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> that is, that is, oh man, wow, oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, and so saying I'm not, I'm not trying to whitewash. So I'm not saying that there aren't some women who are who are uh, not doing well. But what I'm saying is that it's it's not Islam that's keeping them back. It's it's culture, it's poverty, it's um, politics, it's socioeconomics. Drop my defenses, you start to crack a smile. Are you a blue Well, I've been proud and looking in the mirror that's cloud. The funny thing to me is how often I hear Christians uh, flippantly. American, you know, I don't know if they actually even are Christians, not for me to say, but like, you know, call themselves Christians and say things like, you know, oh yeah, the violence. Oh yeah. The oppression of women. Oh yeah. Blah, 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 blah. When, you know, they've probably never read the Quran, never met a Muslim to your point. And I'm sorry, but I mean, I know the Christian Bible pretty well. And there is a lot of violence and oppression of women. (laughs) And it's all about like, oh yeah, what is, what is your framework? What is your confirmation bias doing and allowing you to do to others unchecked? Um, because the same thing could be said of the Christian faith. And I think it could be said of any faith, really. I mean, these right, exactly. ancient texts, I mean, they're ancient, right? They, they're, they text, all these religious texts are from a long, long time ago um, when things were very different. And so we can't really uh, compare them in a vacuum, and we can't, um, you know, point fingers at one and not the other. You know, it was Jesus, right, who said that don't point out the speck in someone else's eye until you attend to the plank in your own. Yes. Mm. So, <laughs> how's that for multi-faith? <laughs> hey, I love it. You just <laughs> rocked that Jesus quote right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think, you know, um, these are all these are all um, ancient religious texts. They need to be they need to be taken in their contexts. I mean, certainly the Quran was speaking to seventh century men, and in a way that seventh century men primarily would understand. And um, are there problematic verses? Well, yeah, of course. But like you said, there are in the Bible as well. So mm, absolutely. And you know, one of my uh, one of my favorite Islamic scholars says that a text is only as moral as its reader. Oh, jeez! Wow. Right? So you can always take any text, any, any text out of context. Um, certainly, you know, like the Islam haters will cherry pick and take verses out of not only their historical context, but also their, their intertextual context. So, um, You know, for example, sometimes you hear people saying, oh, the Quran says that, um, you know, slay slay people who are not Muslims or slay, it doesn't really use infidels, but, you know, slay the infidels or whatever. Um, There are all these violent verses. But what they don't point out is that almost after nearly every violent verse, 
there's a verse that says, but do not attack them unless they attack you first. Ah, wow. Or, but do not aggress because God loves not the aggressor. Or, you know, kill them if they, whatever. But if they cease to fight, you must also cease to fight. So if you take take it intertextually, um, as Islamic scholars have done for for over a thousand years, then you see that, you know, war war or violence in the Quran is allowed only in self-defense. Because there are so many verses that say, but do not attack them unless they attack you first. And so jihad, um, even though it's, it's so, it's so, it's been so appropriated by everybody um, in the public discourse right now, but jihad is a very specific meaning. And um, can I talk about jihad, actually, you guys? I, it's funny. Uh, that was my next question. Please, <laughs> please just keep we, talking. We, we, we definitely have, this was one of the first concepts that popped up when I took this course was um, the fact that uh, jihad means something very different uh, than what we've, it, the way it's been portrayed. And uh, I would love for you to talk about that and how um, the, the five pillars of Islam, the, the tenets of, of the belief system, it's not even one of the five pillars. Am I, am I correct in that? You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. In fact, the five pillars are, um, briefly, the declaration of faith, which is just the belief that there is only one God or um Actually, I like to say there's nothing worthy of worship except God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. Muhammad is the messenger of God. That's the declaration of faith. And then the other four pillars are fasting, prayer, donation to charity, and pilgrimage to Mecca once in your lifetime. So there's no violent war stuff in there at all. There That's is, crazy. There is where's, where, where's the part about the suicide bombing? I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's not in there? No. <laughs> No, there isn't. So, you know, jihad, this word jihad, I didn't even know this word jihad growing up Muslim. I didn't know it until I think my ninth grade social studies teacher said it to me. No kidding. Wow. In So in my social studies class, and I was like, what are you talking about? Unbelievable. And I think he had heard it because of the Iranian revolution, like all the, all the media reports in the Iranian revolution. Um, and so, and I didn't really learn about it even then, because it's just not something we grow up learning about. I mean, Muslims, when we grow up, we grow up like anybody else. I mean, you're taught, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. We're taught how to pray. We're taught to fast during Ramadan. Um, and that's about it. So, wow. you know, I mean, not very different from other people, in other words. Um, oh, and we don't eat pork or, or drink alcohol. But um, I'm vegetarian now, so it's moot anyway. <laughs> but anyway, um, so so jihad. Um, it's it's just interesting that I learned it first in a in a Western context. But jihad actually means struggle. So there, that's the literal meaning of the word, and it's um, the greater jihad or the main definition of jihad is to is the struggle to make yourself a better person. It's the internal jihad to make yourself a better person. Then there's the external jihad, which is to make society a better place. And there are a number of different ways that you can have an external jihad. So you can have jihad by the word, which is using your words to make society a better place, like writing to your Congress people, writing letters to the editor. Um, There's jihad by the hands, which is doing good works to make society a better place, like volunteering at a soup kitchen. That would be jihad by the hands. 
And then there's jihad by the sword, which for over a thousand years has been defined as taking up arms in self-defense or to overthrow an oppressor. And it has to be an immediate oppression. So you can't say, well, the Spaniards threw out the Muslims in 1492, so we're going to go have a jihad um, to overthrow them now. You, you can't do that. <laughs> it has to be an, wow. an immediate oppression. And in fact, um, in India, under British colonization, there was this question, like, could Indians declare a jihad, Indian Muslims declare a jihad to overthrow the British colonizers? And Indian Muslim scholars actually said no, even though um, they were colonized. They said no, because the British are not directly um, preventing you from practicing your religion. That doesn't count as an oppression, and so you can't overthrow them. Wow. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to, because again, you mentioned there's two different types of jihad, the outer and the inner or the greater jihad. Uh, one of, the, one of the things I'd love for you to point out is that the, the, if we could boil down Islam to, to one single belief, and, and correct me again if I'm, if I'm way off on this, but it's, it's submission to God in a way that you are, are acknowledging that you can do nothing without God. Is that uh, kind of a, a fair boiled down assessment? I think that's pretty fair. I mean, Islam, Islam means... Um, so Islam comes from the same root as as salam, which is peace. So Islam actually means uh, peace through the submission of God to God. Sorry, peace, Ooh. like peace to your soul through the submission to God. Oh, that's wow. awesome! So, so the the inner jihad would almost be um, an inner struggle, especially against our our instincts to be um, selfish and self-serving and that, and that sort of thing. That's right. Absolutely right. It's to rid yourself of wicked impulses. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could, we could all, we could all do with a little dose of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. And you know, the military jihad, even one thing I forgot to say, another requirement for it is that it has to be declared by, by a, a leader of, of all Muslims. You know, we don't we don't have a leader of all Muslims. So Oh interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at least, you know, the leader of a of us of a Islamic state. And no leader of an Islamic state has declared a jihad. So um So it's not Osama bin Laden. No, 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 it is not <laughs> Osama bin Laden. Um Osama bin Laden was not was not a scholar. You know, he was not an acknowledged, no. acknowledged scholar, neither is the head of ISIS. So None of these extremist groups, um, you know, one, they're not conducting legitimate jihads. And two, even if they were, they were breaking so many rules of jihad that they're classified as murderers. They're not, um, they're not jihadists. They're murderers. Oh, wow. Man. Uh, I, I know we're running, running short on time here, but there is one, uh, one additional question I, I definitely want to make sure I, I squeezed in, um, and, and that is— one of the other things that pops up in the media now and again is uh, this idea of of not showing images of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I found out the reasoning behind it, it I was like, "Oh, that makes sense." So I wondered if you could <laughs> kind of um, expand on that a little bit and and tell tell the listeners like what what is the purpose behind that? Ah, uh, well, um, you know, when when Islam was born in the seventh century in Arabia, um, this was in Mecca. 
in what is now Saudi Arabia. And um, the primary religion there was paganism. And so most people worshipped idols. And at least at first, Muhammad didn't see himself as, as preaching a new religion. He saw himself as preaching the religion of Abraham or the religion of one God. And, um, you know, just like Christianity accepts Judaism as part of its tradition, Islam from the very beginning accepted Judaism and Christianity as part of its tradition. Wow. So Muhammad accepted um, the Jewish and Christian traditions within Islam. And in fact, Muslims do believe in heaven and hell and all the Judeo-Christian prophets like Noah, Adam, Moses, Jesus, Solomon, David, Jacob. <laughs> so, um, Man. So we do say, after we say the name of Muhammad, we say, peace be upon him. But also after we say the name of Jesus or Moses, we say, peace be upon him. Wow. So, um, so Muhammad saw himself as preaching the religion of Abraham, which was the religion of one God. And so from the very beginning, um, his religion, Islam, was very much against the multiplicity of gods. Uh, it was very much against idol worshiping because that was the situation that it grew out of. So the reason that Muslims shouldn't uh, either shouldn't portray Muhammad in statues or in paintings um, is because Muslims are afraid that people will start worshiping the statues or the paintings rather than worshiping God. So it was a reaction to idol worship. And similarly, um, Muslims are not supposed to portray angels. Angels are the prophets as well. But having said that, this does vary. Like some In some cultures, they're very strict about it, and they won't even um, portray the, uh, the human figure. In some cultures, they'll, they'll portray a human figure meant to be the prophet or angels, and they'll kind of, um, but they'll not have a face in, in some traditions. Um, but in some traditions... They do. Like in Iran, I think they do sometimes um, have have paintings of the prophet or, or, you know, paintings of angels. So it does. So there's a general kind of um, reluctance to to portray the prophets and the angels as in statues or paintings. But sometimes, you know, it does vary a little bit according to culture. It sounds so similar to so much of what... Um I like to focus on in the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, from the earliest stories of God calling Abraham, it was away from this, you know, pantheon of, of idol worship, um, idols for everything, idols for food, idols for sexuality, idols for everything yeah. to this, to this God that refuses to be an idol. Don't make any images of me. Um, you don't really even get to know my name. The only thing I'm going to tell you about my name is I, I am what I am mm -hmm. because we, you, we can't in like Protestant theology is a lot. A lot of it's based on a guy named John Calvin. He said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Oh. So there's so many commonalities here that I love. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, uh, Muslims go ahead. Always, Muslims have always considered Jews and Christians as um, kind of as belonging to a sibling religion because you know Abraham had two sons, right? Isaac and Ismail, and the descendants. Yeah. The descendants of Isaac. Uh, eventually became Jews and Christians, and the, the descendants of Ismail eventually became Muslims. So we're sort of cousins. Yeah, and even in our <laughs> Christian Bible, God speaks that as a blessing over Hagar, that like, even though you suffered this oppression, I am going to bless you. You are blessed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's in our tradition. Yeah, they're very similar. So John Esposito, um, 
who is at Georgetown, I mean, he's Italian Catholic, but he says that just as we talk about a Judeo-Christian tradition, we really ought to be talking about a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition because they are very similar. Mm, I, I completely agree. And um, are you familiar with uh, the Protestant theologian Miroslav Volf? I'm not, no. He wrote um, an interesting book that um, I don't really want to get into it too much here. But you should check it out sometime. It's called Allah, A Christian Response, and it's a deeply uh, a reconciling work. It's his, an attempt to, to you know, create bridges for conversation and dialogue. Hmm. And one of my favorite quotes that I'd love to just get some thoughts from you on is, he says, if it's true that the dual command of love is the common ground of uh, Islam and Christianity, then the consequences of this are momentous. He goes on to say, we no longer have to say to each other, quote, the deeper your faith, the more you'll be at odds with each other. To the contrary, he says, we must say the deeper our faith, the more we will live in harmony with others. A deep faith no longer leads to clashes. It fosters peaceful coexistence, end quote. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Is It seems like that resonates with a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, um, there is a, a really, really strong pluralistic tradition in the Quran and also in Islamic history, which is, again, something that nobody knows about. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, it, under Islamic law and in the Quran, it's really established, actually, that you don't have to be Muslim to go to heaven. Yes. Whoa. Yes. Keep going. It, it always makes me it always cracks me up a little bit because I think, you know, here is this ancient religious text trying to, to tell people that this is the true message. But then it says, oh, but you don't have to believe in me to go to heaven. I, I literally have that line in your book highlighted. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So the Quran says uh, specifically it, it talks about Jews and Christians. So it says um, Jews, Christians, Sabians and others who believe in God and the last day will find their reward in heaven. Um, and in oh, fact, um, the Jews and Christians are given an elevated status as people of an earlier revelation, meaning that they are, there are people who received an earlier revelation from God. Um, <clears throat> the Quran, in fact, um, as Islam spread, the definition of people of an earlier revelation became broader. So as Muslims went to India, they included Hindus as people of an earlier revelation and Buddhists as people of an earlier revelation. Um, the Quran specifically talks about Jews and Christians, though. Um, and in fact, the Quran allows Muslims to marry Jews and Christians. And um, the, one of my favorite verses said, says, God made, God made you into different nations and tribes so you could learn from one another. Which, oh, my goodness. That's a keeper. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is... Keep in mind, 7th century religious text. So, uh, and, in and also, the last thing is that forced conversion, contrary to popular belief, is prohibited in Islam. So, the Quran specifically says there is no compulsion in religion. And um, it also says, to you, your religion, to me, my religion. And, the prophet Muhammad said, God could have made everybody into believers, but he didn't. So who are you to, to force them to believe? Mm. So it's very mm. prohibited. And, you know, I'm not saying that there was never a forced conversion in Islamic history, but um, definitely there was not, there was, there was not a policy of it. So um, when Islam spread, they did establish Islamic rule, but they didn't, they didn't convert people at sword point, which is the popular 
wisdom. Um, and in fact, there's evidence that at the beginning they didn't want to convert people to Islam because they liked being the elite. You know, they liked being being the sort of Muslim ruling elite. Um, uh, and and oftentimes it took a long time. I mean, in Egypt, it took 400 years for the population to become Muslim. Oh wow! Wow. So I think so. And also, you know, every every Islamic empire was a multi-religious empire. Uh, the Mughal Empire, you know, the Islamic Empire, a thousand years after the Prophet, the Ottoman Empire, they were they were all accommodated different religions within those empires and personal law, per, uh, sorry, um, it's like personal life uh, was usually ruled by whatever laws those other religious groups had. So if you were um, a Jew in the Ottoman Empire, the rules of personal status, like marriage and divorce and inheritance, those were, um, those, those were, your Jewish laws that governed you, not not the Islamic laws. So Edward Said, I think, um, who was a Christian Palestinian, said that only Islam was effectively able to tolerate other religions within itself, historically speaking. So. So good, so th- man. Yeah. So there's a history, and you know, it breaks my heart when I when I see people, you know, like those in ISIS or other people talking about. Um, or like the Wahhabis, for example, like strict Wahhabis don't even think of Shia Muslims as real Muslims, you know, much less Jews and Christians or other people. And it just it just breaks my heart because that's not theologically supported and it's not historically supported. You know, historically and theologically, Islam was a was a multi-religious uh, phenomenon. So. Wow. So good. We could just keep going on and on. I'd love to end um, with a little something that we we kind of were talking about a little bit before we turned the, the microphones on, and it was when we were talking about like all the the religions and, and something you had you had uh, pointed out to us about fundamentalism as a percentage in religions. If you could just tease that out a little bit, I think our listeners would get a lot out of that, and it'd be a good place to kind of start wrapping up here. Oh sure. So I was reading a book by Carl Ernst, who is a professor of uh, religion at the University of North Carolina, and. Um, he he wrote that 15 to 20 percent of uh, people in every religious group are fundamentalists. If you define fundamentalists as adhering to a rigid black and white ideology. And what struck me as interesting was not that it was 15 to 20 percent, but that it was the same across all religions, because if it's the same across all religions, then you're not really talking about religion anymore. You're talking about the human condition and how 15 to 20% of all human beings are attracted to a, a rigid black and white ideology. Oh, that is such a mic drop moment right there. <laughs> we, there is absolutely nothing we could ask you at this point that will, that will do that justice. So <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to let everybody think about that. Yeah. Oh, just, oh. Think, just think about that. It's been so much fun talking to you, too. Oh, you've been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, before we let you go, though, we, we definitely highly recommend your book. Um, oh, everybody needs to get this book, Required Reading. Yes. So where is the best place for people to get this book? And you also have a uh, book for children as well, right? I do. So my first book is called The Muslim Next Door, The Quran, The Media, and That Veil Thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's my adult book, and it has a lot of uh, 
a more um, it has more on current e- events, although it's current events change day to day, it seems like lately. But that's my first book, and it's the adult book. I do have a book for ages 10 and up, which is called Grow- Growing Up Muslim, Understanding the Beliefs and Practices of Islam. And that um, is appropriate for ages 10 and up. But what I tell people is it's really for any age. And so if you want a quicker read that really doesn't talk about the media and current events, but just talks about Islam, then you can get that one. And they Perfect. Were, yeah, and they were both. Um, I mean, the the teen book was fun for me to write because it has recipes, and I talk more about what Muslims eat, for example. <laughs> oh well, we we're both foodies, so we can definitely get in on on that. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I just wanted to answer the questions that people ask me as a you know as somebody they know. So hopefully, I do. Oh, that's perfect. Well, I, I can't recommend it enough. I, I loved it. And um, I think we could absolutely all do with a little education. And and uh, like we, we Adam and I have said uh, time and time again on our podcast, um, part part of the issue with, with living in a, in a culture of fear is, is just the unknowing. And once the unknowing becomes known, then oftentimes that fear dissipates and conversations can start. And uh we, we, we hope that uh, that people learn something uh, today a little bit, and uh, we hope they go out and get the book. And uh, we would love to have you back at some point in the future and continue this this dialogue. I would love to come back. Thank you so much. Sambo, you are wonderful. This has been a delight. Well, it's been, it's been a blast for me, too. Thank you so much. You came like a resolution Under a starry sky You are my one solution To the mystery of why Wow. (laughs) Always wow. That's what I love about the show. Do you remember when we first started recording? I, I don't even remember who it was, but somebody was just like, are you guys ever going to like not get your minds blown? Like, you can only get your minds blown for so long. And we were both like, you can? What? Really? No. There's a limit? <laughs> <laughs> I always want to get my mind blown. Right. Oh, that's... Uh, I think that's the point, right? We, we, we try to have guests on. Well, it, How boring would it be if we just got the same guests on all the time who all fell within the same, you know, mind frame, uh, you know, and believe the same things about the same topics, and that's all we did. That's that would be kind of the antithesis of what we're trying to do with this podcast. Yeah. It, you know, it wouldn't even be boring because it wouldn't happen. No, <laughs> we would have never started. We would this have podcast. never started the podcast. Oh my gosh! I I just think hopefully, hopefully you guys took some notes as you went along. And again, I cannot, uh, I cannot recommend her book enough if you just want to get an idea you know uh, like if you really are starting from ground zero and don't know anything um it's just tremendous and um i just want to say like i i knew nothing coming into it and just the history of the religion and uh being one of the three abrahamic traditions yeah um had no idea and so i think the the thing that i honed in on personally i don't know about you but when i was reading this book the things that I really honed in on were the things that seemed contradictory to everything that I knew leading into it. Meaning, um, you know, some of the things that, uh, the radical groups in Islam, uh, are doing that are, um, I think 
in some cases, uh, violations of the religion itself. Absolutely. That if you know nothing about the religion, you would just assume that they all think that way, right? That right. All, all, all Muslims, all people who, who practice Islam, um, you know, that's, that's just the way it's done. Right. And then you realize very quickly, you're like, as with, again, with all religions, as we talked about in the intro, um, there are perversions of all religions. There are extremists in all religions. That was my favorite part of, of our whole conversation with her. And I know we talked about, a bit about that offline before we started recording. Yeah. But just the whole idea that when you survey any worldview or any civilization um, or any religion at, at all, there's a certain percentage of people that are extremist. Yes. Just, yeah. it's, it's not a religious thing. It's not this religion or that religion. It's just a human thing. Yeah. Just think about that. And just be quiet a little bit sometimes, you know, because we just all need to just listen better. We really do. And create opportunities to listen. Yeah. And I think it's funny because the argument that I hear that comes up a lot, and, and I've read part of the Quran, I've read, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the, the Hindu sacred texts as well. I've got one on my bookshelf over here. I've read, obviously, read the Bible. I've read... Yeah, I, I try to read as much as I can, you know, just so I, I, I want to be as informed as humanly possible. But um, the one argument that I hear that comes up a lot is like, well, there's just, you know, the Quran is chocked full of violence. Well, as a Christian, you must be ignoring a whole heck of a lot if, if you're not also acknowledging that there's a whole heck of a lot of violence in it, especially in the Old Testament. Just don't read Judges or Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> and like we can get into a we can get to get into a debate over which one's more violent. And and one, you know, okay, one might be more violent than the other and who knows which who knows. Human beings are violent. Yes. And yeah. and you know, I mean, come on. It 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 astonished me if if you guys haven't seen the movie Silence, you need to see the movie Silence. And it's not a historical movie. It is a work of fiction, but um it's based like on historical, you know, happenings and areas and things like that and like just even knowing that like even Buddhism can get co-opted to become violent if empire takes it as a means to control people. Um it doesn't matter. How do you how do you turn Zen and and Taoism like how do you turn those things Buddhism into violence? We should be asking that about any of these religions for the most part because they all center on loving your neighbor, loving God, taking care of the earth, you know, these, these principles that we can all agree on. And yet, lo and behold, yeah, statistically speaking, empire gets a hold of them, extremists get a hold of them, and they use them because religion is very powerful. Yeah. It's a, it's a great tool if used for uh, evil, evil purposes, right? Absolutely. What was uh what what was the one one of the things that that really just kind of blew your mind like in in talking with her? I I know a couple for me. Oh man, you know for me it was more of just uh, I felt I felt really. I guess the best way of saying it is like uh, I felt kind of bad that I had not engaged more, just in listening to there there are so many Muslims in our community, John. Oh, yeah. So many. And the fact that, like, that hasn't even dawned on me to just, like, you know, try to get to be better friends with some of them and just talk to them more. So when I'm talking to her and I'm, I'm hearing this girl that grew up in California that is, um, you know, very passionate about her religion, but living in the West and breaking all these, like, norms and stereotypes about, like, the subversion of women or the oppression of women, 
um, you know, even like uh, the subtitle of her book, like that that headscarf thing, the head the head <laughs> yeah. covering thing, um, extremism, um, just how open she was to listening to other religions, all of that stuff just kind of blues blew, like blew my mind. Yeah, and, and and I think for me, you know, like I said, very similar, very similar like reaction to this conversation. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. She could not have been just a nicer. Uh, you know, genuine human being and, and just a, I would say a wonderful representative of, of her religion. Absolutely. But, um, but I think uh, two of the things I think that really kind of blew my mind, number one, when she talks about the head covering thing, the fact that she never wore one until she moved to England, I think she said. Right. And then the other one was, um, what was the other one that, that she mentioned? There was another one that she mentioned that I, I was just kind of like, what? Um, shoot, I'm trying to think of it now. I had it and I lost my train. Oh, it's okay. My train. There's so much good juice. <laughs> yeah. People definitely need to go back and just like take a few notes down. And, um, and you know what? Again, yeah. back to the theme of like why we're doing what we're doing. We all need more humility. We oh, all... I remember it now. Oh, do it. Do Sorry. it. <laughs> I was trying to stall. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I, the, the, uh, the, the whole concept behind the um, lack of uh, art and images yes. of Muhammad. That was sweet. You know, how many of us were like, oh, okay, that's a little weird, man. That's a little weird that you can't, you can't even, can't even draw a picture. And then, and then you look into it, you do some research, like talking to her and, and reading some other books that I had read in preparation. And it turns out it's just this way of, um, preventing idolatry from right. seeping into the religion or uh, placing anything on a pedestal over your relationship with, with the divine. And then you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And that's kind of core to Judeo-Christianity right. also, which right. we sort of just threw out, basically, ev- eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Or like the, the other one I thought was kind of cool is um, uh, that it actually says in the Quran that, um, what do they call it? Uh, brother, um, uh, brothers, of the, brothers of the book? I'm getting that wrong. Um, but basically what, what it says is that, that uh, other, other believers... Um, you know the other Abrahamic traditions um, essentially are are all assumed to to meet in heaven. Yeah. With, oh, that was a mind blowing moment for me. Like, wait, she what? was talking about how it's just it's not as simple as do this, do this, do this, and then we're right. the only ones that go to heaven. That there is uh, a lot more layers and complexity and openness and and uh, just not as astringent as like we would have thought. You know. Yeah. Shoot, I thought you had to blow yourself up in a plane to go to heaven, and you know, so you can get your. 10,000 virgins or, you know, whatever yeah. the lore is that just gets spread, right. you know, through word of mouth in our ridiculous culture. But like, yeah, man, we just, we've got to do this more. If you're listening to this, make it a practice to do this more. Um, we just all need to listen better. Yeah. So more, more where this came from. So we'll, we will uh, look at another religion um, in two weeks or it's a like week. doing a flight. I know. It's like doing a flight of good juice. <laughs> yeah. It's a juice flight. And, and, and by the end of it, hopefully you are um, in a very different place than when you started. And yeah. again, like the idea behind any of our episodes, regardless of if we're dipping in, dipping our toe into another religion altogether or just looking at different ideas within the context of our own religion, the idea is to foster conversation and to um, just to think about the world and, and community differently than you did before you walked into this. Yeah, and you know, even beyond that, to become better lovers of humanity, our neighbors. Amen. You know, because you can't, again, if you have blinders on or you have a filter on that you're looking through, you're not actually seeing these people, 
whoever they are. Right. And you can't love somebody you don't see. Right. So it's becoming better at seeing people so we can become better at loving people. And oftentimes it means um, being slower to speak. Yeah. Boom. I think we got to end it there, man. Mic drop. (laughs) Oh, man. I actually do know who the band is uh, for this episode. Well done, John. Thank you. (laughs) Who Who do we got here? Oh man, this week we have Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. Oh, so good! Yeah, he I can't is on we tour. Got them. Yes, yeah, he's on tour right now. Uh, the band is on tour, so go check them out. We'll have uh, um, we'll have all their information in the show notes. So Fabulous. hopefully, enjoy the music, mm. and uh, we'll be back feet. next week. Awesome. Well, we love you guys. Thanks for hanging with us. For now, we're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock, and I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. I don't wanna have I want to follow this river of life where it will have me go. I don't want to have feet of stone. I don't want to have a dagger tongue. I don't want to have a dagger I don't want my words to be a weapon but a healing ball. I don't want to have a dagger tongue. I don't want to have a heavy mind. I don't want to have a heavy mind. I don't want to hold the that are chains of iron I don't want to have a heavy mind I want to have eyes of love I want to have eyes of love Count the beggar man's life precious as mine Offer my back for my brother's load. I want to have eyes of love. I want to have eyes of love. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.